You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll have some of the verses as we go on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Or... I know this weekend was busy for many of us. I just want to say thank you for being here today. Last night was a lot of fun. Mike had a, we had a lot of fun here at the Hill Fest thing. And I know there was even a wedding uh, that we got to celebrate this weekend. There was a whole bunch of things happening. And I just, praising God. This weekend I did a lot of smiling I, I don't know, it doesn't always happen uh, for me, maybe, or you, but I, I just, um, like my stomach hurt after last night and just like I was <laughs> laughing so much, you know, and I think it's a, a reminder, even in the wedding we did the other day, the, the theme of that was just joy, you know, joy in the Lord, and I think that can be something that we, uh, we, we neglect sometimes in the busyness and craziness of life or even in the hardships to counting it all joy and uh that's just been my theme this weekend, to remind myself of the joy that we have in the Lord. And uh, as has been already said, there's a lot of things happening, and, and yet the men's retreat is coming up, and, and then there's a variety of other things happening over the next Sundays, and it's just really neat to see. So if you can join in that uh, retreat, I, I, I challenge you, it's going to be a really, really good time. Looking forward to it a lot. So uh, this, this passage, this, this chapter uh, 18 and 19 that we're looking at today continues on in our series in King David as we've been looking at his life. And uh, last week, if you missed that one, you missed a, a great uh, message in uh, David and Goliath. Uh, so it was a really fun one to preach because it's a story we all know and we're almost maybe too familiar with it. And to then really break it down and see what God was doing there, God, uh, really David versus Goliath, but we see God is in the background the whole time. And today we have a, a similar theme of David versus Saul. And really what we're gonna see is that God's in, in control and he's directing David's path, and he's protecting him every step of the way. Uh, so we'll be kind of looking at figures of Jonathan and David and Saul and Samuel. They all kind of come up in here, and you're, we're going to see Saul as this real character who's opposing everything that David does, and uh, these polar opposites that come about. And uh, so before we jump into 1 Samuel 18, this is that theme that I want us to kind of get that's been going on from the beginning here, where God has been setting himself up in these ways to clearly demonstrate his power and his authority uh, and his control. As he's been up against the Philistines or up against Dagon, the God there, as he's been up against Saul already, and then he was up against Goliath, and now again against Saul here. And we see him constantly in this relationship here of demonstrating his power and authority. And yet we also see what happens here is that there's kind of this clear line that's drawn in the sand. There's these, there's these polar opposites that are clearly presented to us in the text. These, these uh, divisions where either you are for God or you are against him. Either you are, as many of the people in this chapter, are 
all about loving David and supporting David, or, or you are fully against him and against his work. And it, it just reminded me of this concept of these polar opposites that I see happen around all the time, or, or these really kind of love-hate relationships that we go through. And uh, I don't, I'm not really sure about you or how many of you have uh, or know of these things that, that you're in a love-hate relationship with. Uh, and I see some of you actually looking to the person next to you. That's probably not, not the best look there. Um, love-hate relationships here. They're like for around here in New England, uh, you have kind of the, uh, that drink that some people love and some people hate. Um, I don't know if you, you know that, that drink from Maine, that moxie, right? And I could probably pull the audience, and I bet there's either 100% people uh, on one side that are just like strong supporters of moxie, and then the others are, are just vehemently against the fact that you could put cough syrup in an in a, in a actual can and, and sell and distribute that, right? Uh, I, for one, think moxie, you know, <laughs> yeah, Brian is amening that already, right? I knew that would eliminate a strong response. Um, the other one is like, since I'm a millennial, I drink a lot of a uh, seltzer, right? And some of you are like big seltzer people. And then the rest of the people are just like, why would you drink that? It's disgusting, right? It always has, elicits very strong responses. Um, and there's so many things in life like that. Uh, I've, I've even found that a lot of people like us, you know, good people, are coffee drinkers, right? And then there are people who just no coffee whatsoever. Uh, and music is a big one. Mike just left so we can talk about. Some people love Mike's music. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> he's just popped outside. Um, but or, or the classic one I see all the time is country music. Some of you country music people are like, yes, 100%, and then 100% no. I know there's a lot of arguments and bitter rivalries over cars, I've heard. I'm not a big car guy, as you know, but the Ford and Chevy, we could probably take that poll here and stuff, these love-hate relationships. Um, uh, you know, that's just a variety of ways we operate. And we often have to come to our place in life where we are choosing one or the other. And the, the text is constantly pushing us to these places of, of love-hate relationship. Which one, what is the one in which that we are going to choose? What side are we going to find ourselves on? Are, are you with God or are you against him? Or you could say, is God with you? David and Goliath. David and Saul. Here, David is either one that you love and you support and you're fully behind or one that you are opposing and seeking to undermine. And yet we're going to find that no matter what happens here in this situation in particular, nobody can stop the plans of God. Nobody can thwart his anointed one. This, this message today is the passage we're looking at. If, if you have trouble paying attention in church, I hope today is not going to be that day. There are, uh, this chapter is full of intrigue and espionage and uh, murder and, uh, or attempted murder or assassination attempts and narrow escapes and prophecy and there are all sorts of things happening in these chapters. And yet, yet no matter what comes against David, we're reminded that the Lord is with him and that is enough. It's all he needs. But the Lord is is with him. And I hope today that you will be encouraged. I hope today you will find confidence in the Lord and he will strengthen your faith, reminding you that God is with you and he loves you as we've already sung about. And in that confidence that we have confidence to face no matter what is upon the horizon or what is waiting for you tomorrow, we have confidence knowing that we belong to God or as I was talking about in my Sunday school class, what, what is our only hope in life and death? 
We belong to God. Of life, soul, body, death, whatever it might be, we belong to our Lord. And it's in that place that we find ourselves safe. It's in that place that we find that we find victory, for it is God who gives the victory. It's God's plan. His will cannot be stopped. And so are we with Saul? Are we with David? Which side are we on? That's where we're left. And so let's begin reading uh, 1 Samuel 18. We're going to just read chunks here and there as we go, describing the passages. There'll be sections that I won't be able to read today, but we'll kind of describe as we go. The first major point here is in the first four verses is Jonathan's esteem. He, he gives, he's going to give honor and respect to David. This is directly after the battle with Goliath has taken place. So imagine David has just stepped into the prominence of Israel. He is now famous for taking out Goliath and cutting off his head. And then, and then we walk right through into chapter 18. And it says, as soon as he had finished speaking, and so this is directly very soon after, and it says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took, a, uh, took, took him that day and, and would not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was his outer garment, this royal robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. And, and he took off his royal armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. He took off this armor and he gave it to David. And then David went out and was successful wherever, he, wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over men of war. And this was good in the sight of the Lord and all the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. Here we see right at the beginning, this, this friendship begins. I was going to mention it in a greater detail today, but we're actually going to save it till next week because chapter 20 speaks a great deal about friendship, friendship between Jonathan and David. A unique thing that in today's culture is not something that we find very common. And so I want to describe that next week as, as we talk about this, this love that Jonathan has for David and that, that we have this friendship that starts to be forged. And yet what we have in this beginning is Jonathan in this very visible picture, stripping himself of his royal garments and giving them to David. It's a very clear description. Remember we looked at, remember David goes to Saul, tries to put on the armor of Saul, and go into battle to face Goliath. And then very clearly the text reminds us he attempts to put the armor on, but he had not tested him and it did not fit. And he strips off the garment and he leaves it at Saul's feet. And then he heads into battle. It's a very clear depiction of God being with David and that's all he needs. He does not need the, uh, the accursed one of Saul and his armor to protect him. He doesn't need that. And yet here Jonathan being the prince of the nation. It's the son of King Saul. He is the next rightful heir to the throne. It's Jonathan who says, no, 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 you, David. I give you all the esteem. I respect you. I honor you. And I desire what's best for you. Here, take my sword. Take my belt. May you, the anointed one, be king. Is, is in, a, in essence, and whether Jonathan knew all of that was happening or not, we see that as a clear example of, of Jonathan stepping forward and respecting and honoring the anointed one that was to come eventually to take the throne. It's an incredible thing. Many commentators I was reading talking about this, they're like, this never happened in this time. 
what happened often with princes or kings. You killed off anybody who was in competition with you. <laughs> you would take them out. And here we have the opposite. We have Jonathan exalting David. It's an incredible, incredible picture. He sheds off his armor. And so we see this really clear here. He, he gives this honor and esteem to David. And then we see David excelling, excelling. Look at this. In verse 5, it says, he was successful. He was successful wherever Saul sent him. This was good in the sight of the people and in the nation. And then it says in, in verse 6, he went out and he struck down the Philistines and all these things. Later on, if you skip down, you could look at, uh, let's see, verse 14, it says David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. Do you see that phrase? The Lord was with him. We've seen that even up until this point in the last chapter in the chapter before, this clear statement that is constantly in our face. The Lord is with him. But right before that, verse 14, David had success. David had success. It says it in verse 30 as well of 1 Samuel 18, verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle as often as they came out. Verse 30, David had more success than all of his servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. Other places it says that these people loved David and he had success because the Lord was with him. Virtually every major movement we've seen from 1 Samuel up until this point, and especially in these chapters, is constantly marked by a reminder that the success of David is due to the fact that God is with him. David is successful because God is with him. God is directing, God is empowering and directing. And yet we've also been reminded that it is about less about the outward appearance and more about the inward uh, aspect or the inward life and the inward honesty of the heart. It's about the heart of David. And we see that being the clear depictions that we've seen over this last couple of weeks. And so it's such an extraordinary thing. In fact, that, <laughs> that, that who determines the success we have in life? I think Mike practically stole the, the thunder on this earlier, right? fantastic, because it just like, there were things Mike was saying just about that. What made him useful, or their band useful or not? What makes you useful in what you do or not? What makes you successful in what you do or what you don't do? What, what, well, how would we measure success? You know, and David here is going to experience what might on the outward might look like not a lot of success. Sure, he just took out Goliath. But we're about to find out beginning this Sunday and the coming weeks, he is going to be harassed and hunted for years. He's going to constantly be facing opposition. And he, yes, has experienced a measure of success and victory for a time, but he's going to go through trials and tribulations. And so what would we quantify as success and, and how much, what does that look like in our lives? How much is that to us? How much is it to God when we look at what is successful? How is this successful or not? As I quote, I've said it here many times, something that I've always carried with me, even before I started here. It was something, I don't remember where or when I picked it up, but it was a quote from Spurgeon where Spurgeon known as the Prince of Preachers and I, little old Jordan Moody here in tiny little town of Jaffrey, you know, it's like got nothing in comparison and yet, Spurgeon himself said, whether I am useful or successful or not, is not one half so much my business as whether I'm faithful and true. 
So much of that determining the, the size or the influence that you might have in life, whether your business is successful or not, there is much to do with, yes, our faithfulness and our, our attitude in that and our heart and our disposition, but so much of it is just simply not caring about any of that <laughs> and simply just being faithful and true to God. Be faithful to what He's called you to do. Be true in your heart to following Him in faith. And the success or lack thereof is up to him. It's not about this, look at me, like he was saying earlier, look at our band being the useful best ones here. No, 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 the fact that God can use you and he does very often. It's incredible to see what God will do with someone willing to be used. And yet I think so oftentimes our metrics for success are just not God's metrics for success. And so let us just be comfortable in knowing that God is with us and let us be faithful and true in our faith, knowing that he is with us, he is guiding us, he's empowering us, he's encouraging us. As the Bible says, he, we are being equipped for service and let us serve him. And then let's let him um, deal with the success. Let's let him give the increase as the Bible says. And so that's a little aside here, and I found that encouraging uh, for, that Mike was sharing earlier, and I feel like that just ties in well here, is the success that David has or the apparent lack of it as he's being hunted are all due to God and his faithfulness to him. Let's be faithful. And yet we see right after this is Saul is building into this anti-David character, this love-hate thing. Love, he even begins, Saul begins loving David and bringing him in and being grateful for him. He loves David and brings him into his house where he's playing music for him and soothing him. He kills Goliath. And now Saul's envy is going to be built into these levels where it will give way to, to murder. And so what, what begins to happen is his jealousy and his envy is starting to grow and grow as, as we see in verse 6 and 7. And as they were coming home, this is 1 Samuel 18, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities saying, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with his tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul struck down a lot, but David struck down a lot more. That made Saul feel really good, didn't it, right? And Saul was very angry, <laughs> and this saying displeased him. Well, as we talked about earlier, he was envious. He wanted, he, he wanted to be the useful, successful leader. David wasn't supposed to shine. David wasn't supposed to get in his limelight. And then what does it say in verse 9? Saul eyed David from that day on. I love that. He eyed him. He watched him out of the corner of his eye with an eye full of envy. I saw one Tim Chester said, envy is the mother of malice and gives birth to murder. Envy is the mother of malice and gives birth to murder and that's exactly what we see happen. There is this brooding going on. In verse 10, we see the harmful spirit return, which has come and left, come and left. Anytime uh, we, we see this harmful spirit come, it, it's this danger that occurs because Saul in many ways is being judged for his disobedience and rebellion against God, and he's reaping the consequences of his sin. And one of the consequences of his sin looks like this in verse 10, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul 
It's the same verb used for when the Holy Spirit rushed upon David and fell upon him. Here the, the harmful spirit rushes upon Saul and he raved. The word he raved also means he prophesied within his house while David was playing the lyre or the guitar as he did day by day. Saul had a spear in his hand. Verse 11, and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. This harmful spirit comes upon him. Like I said, this reaping of the consequences that Saul has for the God has said that I will tear the kingdom from your hand and I will give it into a man after my own heart for your heart is after your heart and the people's heart. It is selfish and full of pride. And full of envy. And notice it's after Saul's envy grows to a point that the harmful spirit returns. And we see this happening in many different locations in the Bible. I think we even mentioned it in the last couple of weeks. When God's judgment comes upon the people. We think of Pharaoh hardening his heart and the judgment come upon them. Flood, yet the saving of Noah, Samson's disobedience and judgment that he receives. Yet God's still allowing him victory over the enemies in the end situation with Job and Satan, the punishment from God due to the mistreatment of the ark that we find in the covenant, uh, the ark of the covenant where later on we see that, but also with Dagon and the, and the pestilence that goes about, the battle of Ai and the lives lost there due to, to Achan's sin, we see that in the judgment that he receives, and a variety of other situations in which God's wrath against sin is enacted in ways that strikes us as frightening to even consider these things. Every time the harmful spirit returns, it it elicits a response even from me. I'm like, wow, how is this possible for this harmful spirit from the Lord comes upon Saul as a judgment, you could say even as a disciplining effect, hoping maybe to return him to the Lord. And so we're made aware here of, of God's sovereignty over these things, and yet we see God's loving care and his hand over his children, that, that he is at the same moment will protect his ste- and, and, and will pour out his steadfast love and will shelter David and his people in the shelter of his wings. He's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's forgiving and merciful. And we see this holy God who is all of those things at the same time here um, in this situation. And then we see that attempted murder here. This is just the first account of murder. We're going to talk about murder a lot today. <laughs> and he's, he's in this raving standpoint. He tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. Later on, he does it again. It says twice that he tried this. And it's actually this word pin David. The word pin there in the Hebrew is the same word for strike that we read last week. So when, when David strikes Goliath in the forehead with a stone, we see that that word means strike or hit or pin and, and David, uh, Goliath comes tumbling to the ground. Here we have Saul in taking a like manner, having a spear like Goliath did, trying to strike or pin David. And yet who comes out victorious in the end? He misses, right? Saul fails. The Lord prevails. David, God's anointed one, pins or strikes Goliath and prevails. And the Philistines and the enemy fail. We see this clear distinction is made over and over in the passages as we look, that God is elevated constantly to the, to the forefront because the Lord was with David. And yet clearly here we see in verse 12, look at this, you'll see this clear, as I was speaking about earlier, this love-hate relationship, this clear division, this clear delineation. You see a clear division here happen. In verse 12, Saul was afraid. He was afraid of David because why? The Lord was with him but it had departed from Saul. The Lord was with David, but the spirit has departed from Saul. 
So Saul removes him from his presence. Then later on in verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And Saul saw that, and he had great success, and he stood in fearful awe of him. And so Saul starts thinking to himself, well, how can I destroy this David? How can I get rid of this David guy? And so he starts devising different plans. And he'll use any attempt in any way that he possibly can. The first is by using his eldest daughter, hopefully to lure uh, David into a precarious situation. That doesn't work. This is later on, really, in verse 17 through 20. And then we find, Saul finds out that Michael, his youngest daughter, or his other daughter, uh, Saul's other daughter, Michael, loves David dearly. And so he offers Michael's hand to David, but only if he can kill a hundred uncircumcised Philistines. If you can take out a hundred of them and return uh, with them, then you know what? I will give you uh, my daughter Michael. And he's hoping to put David in again in a precarious situation that hopefully will take him out. Maybe the Philistines will be able to take David out for me. So David goes out. He returns with 200, 200 that he's slain. And so, as a dowry has been paid, Michael and David are married. And then it reminds us again in verse 28, when Saul and knew that, for that the Lord was with David, verse 28, and that Michael, Saul, daughter, loved him. Saul was even more afraid of David, and so Saul was David's enemy continually, continually. Then we see another attempted homicide in verse 19, verse ni- uh, chapter 19, that is, rather. Chapter 19, we see uh, Saul uh, at home, and he's talking with Jonathan and his servants. And in verse, chapter 19, verse 1, it says that they should kill David. You know, just a little dabbling in premeditated murder. No big deal, okay? <laughs> and so he's just chatting about this, talking about this, and, and Jonathan is hearing this conversation. Jonathan comes to his father Saul and and tries to reason with him and says, don't do this that you're thinking of considering murder on David. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Remember, hey, Saul, chill, relax, right? Because remember when uh, David took out Goliath and that was pretty helpful, right? And and all the people are supporting David and they're like, let's not do this thing of murder. And so Saul actually reasons with Jonathan. Jonathan, in this beautiful way, restores peace and brings uh, David and Saul together. It's an extraordinary picture. And he, he reminds him that God has worked a great salvation. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence before him. But that is fleeting. And there is another situation that happens in verse 8. There was war again, it says. The Philistines are attacking. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. And as he sat in his house with a spear in his hand, this is when he tried to pin David to the wall again. And yet he eluded him. David fled and escaped that night. Second account of attempted homicide. Then the third account of attempted homicide happens in verse 11. This is actually kind of a comical story. I really found this one fascinating. I'd forgotten all about this one until I was studying it. In verse 11, we see uh, Saul uh, sending messengers to David's house. This is verse 11, uh, 1 Samuel 19. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael's, Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. And so after Saul has tried to pin him to the wall, where, where does he go? Well, he runs home. He goes home where any person would go to his wife. 
When he receives his home, he doesn't know that there's been some messengers, as the ESV says. It's more agents. You could say he sent assassins to sit on his house, right? He sent a detail to watch the house. And, and as Michael notices this, David does not. Michael picks up on it, and she warns him. Verse 12 says, so Michael let David down through the window. I mean, is this not just cinematic, okay? It's extraordinary to consider that there's these men laying, lying in the bushes waiting for the light to come and David to walk out his front door so that they can kill him. And Michael warns him. He says, okay, they're out here. They're over there. Why don't we go to the back window here? And they creak the window and it makes noise and they're hoping not to make it, let anybody know. And then they put the rope down and, and he goes down the rope and, and he sneaks out into the night. But what does she do? She knows that these men are still there. She's on her own. So Michael, look at this, verse 13, Michael took an image. It's actually interesting. That word is idol. Could have been a household statue. Maybe it's a statue of David or something. Okay. Um, But uh, some of you will get that joke. But uh, Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. Okay, you guys getting the image here? Uh, literally, she, she puts in something that looks like David is sleeping in the bed and covers it up. I mean, how many of you did that to your parents, right? And you snuck out the window. This is literally like explaining every teenager's existence, okay? It's quite hilarious. In fact, I was a, uh, a dorm supervisor uh, right after Jamie and I got married at a, at a Christian school locally here. And uh, I, it's classic, but, you know, every time you get kids that think they're pretty cool and they try to escape in the middle of the night. And uh, that happened. But this kid wasn't very intelligent uh, because he escaped on a night that was like storming rain. I don't know. I think he just got it in his mind. That was the night we're going to escape. And in the pitch black in the rural woods of Dublin, you're not really going very far in the rain. And uh, so we found out, Wesbury's checking room, he had put the blanket and he had put like four soccer balls in his bed. And then there was a soccer ball with like kind of this like brown like blanket he had put as the hair and, and hoping that I would just look into the room and see this, you know, I don't know, caterpillar that was sleeping there because it didn't really look much like a person, but it was a brave effort, okay? And then we were like, where did he go? And, and no, no doubt he had, they had snuck out one of the windows. And uh, so we didn't even go looking for him. We just sat in the lounge waiting for them to return because you can't go very far. It was pitch black and it was pouring rain. And let, 30 minutes later, uh, they come with their tail between their legs right back in the middle and they got in trouble. Or it was just more like, what are you doing, you know? Like so. Uh, I've been there. I've had that experience. But that's exactly what happened because the messengers returned in verse 14 and Saul sent messengers to take David. But he's not outside, so they go inside. And Michael says, oh, he's sick. He's sick. He's not feeling very good. He can't come out today. Can you guys return sometime? So then Saul says, no, you go back to that house. You take him out of that bed, and you kill him. And so they bring him up into the bed, and and they said, kill him. And, And when the messengers, verse 16, messengers came in, behold, the image was in his bed, and the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me this way? All right, so, so they, he's escaped again. And then after this account, he's escaped. We get this extraordinary account where the last attempt of murder here happens, and yet God is going to shine brightly in this closing section. You'll see, for David runs to the place that he knows. After he's, left to, he's run away from home, where does he go? It's telling, because he runs in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel. Came to Samuel. This is verse 18. At Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he said, uh, oh, sorry. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. 
And then, verse 20, Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as the head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. You get the picture? Saul, uh, Samuel's running this school uh, for the prophets, and they're meeting out in these tents in this wilderness area, and Saul, uh, s- 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 David runs to him for protection. Saul sends messengers or agents, assassins, to go and kill David at the school. And uh, as soon as they get near, they hear a worship service going on. The prophets are prophesying, speaking, and singing the truth of God. And verse 21, and they, uh, verse 20, the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they join in the worship service as well. It just must have been an awesome time, that captivating. So it happens once. You're like, well, okay, let's see what next. Verse 21. When it was told Saul, he and other messengers, uh, they also prophesied. Okay, the second time. And, and then, then Saul sent messengers again, uh, the third time. And they also prophesied. So you get the groups of soldiers are running to this, and it's just a killer service, man. And everybody's jumping in, and they all have their hands raised, and they're praising God. Okay? So three groups have joined this service that Samuel is leading with the prophets. And then verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah. Saul's like, dude, if you got... Man, you guys are worthless. If you're going to get something done, you got to do it yourself, right? So Saul finally puts on his, his uh, sword, and he heads out there, and he's going to finish the job himself. And so this is where we get this incredibly powerful and humbling scene for Saul. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they're at Naoth in Ramah. And he went to Naoth in Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus, it is ironically said here, again for the second time in 1 Samuel, is Saul among the prophets. What a strange and yet incredibly powerful story. But it was incredibly powerful because it's humorous. It's almost ironic. It's, it's this, this enemy coming against the things of God, constantly coming against and running against and, and seeking to murder and seeking to, to cause destruction, seeking to take out David. And yet, every step of the way, they are thwarted. They're stopped. They fall helpless before God. It's so crazy because the outward of the appearance, the outward appearance would seem like this is a bad situation. It's a situation that is getting out of control, and yet we see that God is the one guiding and directing and protecting his people. Not how tall the giant is, not how many soldiers are hunting you down, not how numerous the enemy is, but it's about how big our God is. Outwardly, it would seem David is running for his life when in all reality, David couldn't be more safe, for God is with him. When life seems out of control, when things are, are getting crazy, and I, we know that our faith may stand, how firm is our foundation? We sang earlier, he won't lead you down, he, let you down. He won't, he says. God is with us today. And you say, well, I'm, I'm, you don't know what I'm going through, and you're right, I might not. We know that we are going to face persecution in many ways. Lives, our lives may at times feel like we're being harassed. How could we say that God is with me even right now? He seems to have left me. 
Seems to have abandoned me. I'm on the run. Saul is chasing me down. Where's God in that? How how could God be with me today? And I would say, well, you're here today, aren't you? (laughs) You're here right now. You're hearing these words. You're singing his praises. However, how much faith you have, as we said earlier, a grain of a mustard seed. He's with you. I shared this with someone earlier this morning who's going through a hard time, but this quote hit me this week. It's from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you are successfully past your trial, but that you're still on your feet in the middle of it. I don't know if you're in the middle of it or you're at the end of it, but the fact is that God is with you through all of it. And even right now, wherever you find yourself, in grief, in hardship, persecution, in trouble, we know that we are on our feet today. (laughs) Or maybe we're humbly, like Saul, we are being humbled before God today. The fact is that he is with you every step of the way. He hasn't abandoned you, though you might abandon him. He's there waiting. Here we witness God protecting David, reminding him that he is with him because there is, there is a spear in the wall and not in his chest. You've been given a wife to warn you and a window to escape through. Those who surround your house cannot harm you. Though your enemy may harass you, my spirit will render them helpless. <laughs> Opposition will come. Persecution you will no doubt have to face, but God is a God of great reversals. One commentator said this is the reverse returns principle, or the principle of the great reversal. It's the way that God works. It's the storyline of the garden. (laughs) Though sin may come, God will work it for good and provide redemption for his glory and a rescue plan. It's the story of Daniel taken away to Babylon because of the sin of the people, yet God exalting him and using him for the glory of his name in a foreign land. It's the story of Joseph being left for dead and sold into slavery, yet God elevating him and using him to save the family of Israel. It's the story of David being harassed and hunted, but God reversing the evil intent of his enemies to magnify his glory in ways that could never have been done before. It's this sense of the more the enemy resists, the more glory God will receive. The people of God and the church will not fall. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. (laughs) Nothing can come against it. Sure, we stress and we worry at times about the nation or what's going on in our world, but we have to remind ourselves constantly that though the enemy seems to be be winning or successful or whatever way or whatever metric you like to put to that, We have to recognize the church will not fall. It will not fail. God's plans will be accomplished. And we get to join him in that invitation to work with him in accomplishing his mighty plan. It's beautiful. And so what's the ultimate principle of reverse returns? What's the ultimate principle, the ultimate situation of the great reversal? You are probably already very familiar with it, maybe thinking about it right now. It's the cross, is it not? It's the cross that that what we meant for evil to destroy and kill the anointed one, to keep Satan upon the throne, for our sin to take Jesus, our Messiah, the Lamb of God, and to sacrifice him on the altar, hang him on a cross, good riddance, we can do what we want now. 
That death, who, would, who could have guessed that that death would be our only salvation and our only hope? That God would work a great reversal because of his saving grace. For in his death, he gives life. It's found in his resurrection as he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Romans 5.10, for while we were still sinners, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 1 Corinthians 15.21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so now in Christ all will be made alive. That's Jesus defying the enemy's expectations by conquering and defeating and disarming the rulers in high places. It's by pouring out his life unto death that he bears our sins, he carries our sorrows. And, and though we, like Saul, esteem him not, it's by his wounds that we're healed. It's by his sacrifice we are saved. It is by his grace that we are forgiven. And this is the faith of David in the middle of all of this. This is what he believed. This is what was in his heart. And I know this because David writes about this. As I close, I want to turn to Psalm 59. This is a corresponding psalm to the chapter I just read. Uh, you'll notice in Psalm 59, the subscript of the psalms is deliver me from my enemies. It says a psalm of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So he, he sends, he writes this psalm at the very moment when, when the people are surrounding his house while he's on the run, he writes these words. David writes these words in the middle of that. He says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. He begins with, deliver me and from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Save me, deliver me. But is that all he does? No, he says in verse eight. He says in verse eight, but you... Oh, Lord, laugh at them. Saul thinks he's got it under control. I'm going to finish this David on my own. He runs in, and he is rendered helpless before a holy God. Who can stand before a holy God? Goliath? No. Saul? No. No one can stand against him. The Lord will laugh at them. You hold their nations in derision. Verse 9, oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God in his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph upon my enemies. For you are my shield. In verse 16, he ends with this. This is, this is what we're ending with, with a song. Singing, mighty to save. That even no matter, no matter where you are today, no matter what you're going through, whether you're like David and the, someone is hunting you down, or whether you're in the middle of a trial or you're on the mountaintop of the valley, we find ourselves as a people of God because of our faith of our faith in someone greater than ourselves. We find ourselves being able to come to a place where we can sing. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? David writes this song, and in the very end, well, people are surrounding his house, so I don't know the exact moment he writes this, but he says these words, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We praise you for these truths. Would you strengthen our faith today? 
Help my unbelief, Lord. Strengthen me. Encourage, God. Give me the power to know and to understand that you are with me, that you love me, that you give us the courage to face the day and hope for tomorrow. Pray that you would be with these people, many of which, Lord, I know are going through even difficult times right now. Would you be their God? Would you be their strength? Would you show them, Lord, that you are mighty to save? Mighty to save. Stronger than anything else in this world that may come against us. For while we are with you, what can come against us? We praise you, God, for these truths. May you be glorified in all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations.